0: Today's scripture reading is Acts 4, 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old.
1: Let's begin with another quick word of prayer. Jesus, you are the word, and you is the hope of the world, and you is our life and our light. So more than anything, we want to know you more, we want to love you more, we want to know your blessed presence among us more. So please, may may you do that, may you open our eyes, may you warm our hearts, may you convince us that you are not only the risen Lord of the universe, but you are worth everything we have. We pray this in your glorious and beautiful name, Amen. When I was in high school, one of the regular rhythms of our high school youth group was the winter retreat. If you grew up in youth group, you probably went on a winter retreat. It was a weekend you take away. Usually in January, February, you'd go up Friday night, and way my church did it. We'd rent out a camp and be there Friday night till Sunday. There'd be teaching and worship, and um, and then a whole lot of fun. We, there was like a sledding hill and games, and so it was both spiritually very helpful and edifying and and really formative for me, but then also a ton of fun. And there was one winter retreat in particular that is very memorable for me, and um, it was the Friday night session, so the the speaker was talking, and I still remember at least the gist of what he said, which is kind of amazing, because this was 20 years ago now, and I've heard many sermons since then, but I still remember this talk. And the guy was talking, he's basing it all, this kind of meditation on, this, on the Greek word uh, kairos, which means time. And it's funny, now that I've um, been in seminary, I think it was probably an exegetical fallacy. But that's okay, God uses right crooked sticks to draw straight lines. But the idea of this word kairos, it means like an appointed time, a season that, you know, comes and goes. And so he's like, our life is full of these appointed moments that Christ, you know, calls us to... to, to share the gospel and to do his work and then the time's gone and we either step into that moment or we don't and he had this illustration where he had a light bulb and he like throw it in the trash can. Like that's boom, that's one opportunity gone. Which sounds really dramatic in hindsight, but in the moment it was very it was very uh, uh, compelling. And um, we finished the session and um, I don't think there was an altar call or anything like that. Like that's not my church's tradition. But but um, during the, the closing song, like students just started walking forward. There's maybe 100 students in this room, and maybe 40 walk forward, and I was among them, and, um, and just begin to pray, and to weep, and to confess sin along the front right here. And I had this memory of, of sitting again with my classmates, and, and fellow students, and, and, and seeing kids who before this, they was, were not like the good youth group kids. They were like the kids who were too cool for school, and, and, and just tears, just coming down their faces as they're overwhelmed by the, the presence of the living God, overwhelmed by the mercy of this God who is present among us. Um, it's not the only experience like that I've had. I had a few of those in high school. And they were so formative for me because they, were, they helped convince me on more than just an intellectual level that God is real, the gospel is true, and is worth anything I could ever give to this Lord Jesus Christ. I think that high school experience is a little bit what the early church is experiencing at this point in Acts, except it's not just one evening, but it's prolonged. Just a deep sense of God's presence, um, the, the, the truths of God's forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ are overwhelming this early church members. And maybe you've had experiences like that at a retreat or maybe at a prayer meeting or maybe on a Sunday morning service or again where God just seems so real and so present and you're overwhelmed and maybe you're not normally a weepy person but you tear up. And But imagine you're in a moment like that. Um, God seems to be working and he's moving and it's a powerful moment. And then all of a sudden you hear and someone kicks in the door and in rush the religious police and they grab your pastor and another leader and they handcuff them and they drag them out the building. And as they're walking out, one of these guards looks around and says, If you know it's good for you, you'll leave. That's a very different ending than how I experienced, you know, that retreat when I was in high school. But that's basically what happens in our text this morning. Again, up until this point, the church has been almost experiencing a Cinderella kind of existence. I mean, there's, there's miracles, healings, tongues. There's this deep, beautiful fellowship and unity among the people. God seems so present. It's like anything can happen to this church. And then in the middle of that, we get this first test, this first opposition to the church and what a test it is. And we'll see if the leaders of this church, if this early church will remain faithful to this Jesus Christ even in the midst of this opposition. And what we're gonna see though is although the enemies of Jesus Christ wanted to crush him and his church because Jesus Christ has risen, because he's not dead, although he was crucified, everyone in the story knows that, Jews and Christians alike, but Christians proclaim is that this Jesus is no longer dead, he's now alive, he's risen, and because he's reigning at the right hand of the Father, even this opposition is being used to extend his kingdom. And because Jesus Christ is risen and rules by his spirit, nothing can stop his gospel and nothing can stop his kingdom. That's what we're gonna see this morning. So our first point, give you a road map of where we're gonna be, first point is gonna be the test, the second point is gonna be Jesus reigns through his spirit the third point is Jesus reigns, period. So again, a context just to remind us of what's happening. We're in the middle of a story when we pick up in chapter 4. Peter and John are walking to the temple one day. There's a man who's, who's had a physical disability his entire life. cannot walk. And Peter heals this man. And this man is so dramatically healed that although he had never walked a day in his life, he's leaping and praising God and people have seen this man every day walking to the temple begging, and here he is leaping and praising God and clearly healed. And so people are amazed. It draws a crowd. It's this divinely anointed moment. You know, it's that, it's, that, it's that, um, that pin drop moment that every preacher longs for when the, the rustling stops and the fidgeting stops, and you can hear pin drop because people are listening. And Peter shares the gospel, and we find out in chapter four that more people confess Christ and join this church. And it's in the middle of this, again, what you could call a revival that chapter four breaks in. So again, let me read for us verses one to seven again. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, about what name did you do this? So in the midst of this revival, and boom, in comes these people, and it tells us it's the priests, these are the ones who ministered in the temple, they were in charge of the sacrifices, making sure they're carried out, pretty obvious. But then it has this captain of the temple. Who's that? Well, he would have been basically in charge of the temple police. Um, There was a security force in the temple that were there to make sure no one got a little too crazy in their worship. Uh, There was no kind of rioting, also to keep people out of the places they were not supposed to go, the holy place, the most holy place. And so this is a captain of those kind of religious police and he would have been the second most senior person in the temple. You had the high priest and then you had the captain of of the temple. And then with them are the Sadducees. And what's interesting is that um, Peter and John are arrested again a chapter later. And in that chapter, once again, it's the Sadducees who are stirring this up, who are instigating this opposition. So it seems that the Sadducees of this time were behind a lot of the opposition to the church in Jerusalem. So who are the Sadducees? Well, they were a religious group within Judaism. They're predominantly kind of we think of wealthy aristocrats. They claim to descend from the high priest uh, Zadok. So they claim this very like distinguished priestly lineage. Um, and what, what's important for us to know is that um, you know the Jewish nation is is being ruled by Rome, and there's various ways of of. Responding to that, some Jews like the Zealots are like basically terrorists, and like no, we want to kill every Roman we can. At the other end of the spectrum are the Sadducees, who are like, look, Rome's here to stay. Let's just make the best of this. And so they, they they cooperated with Rome in all kinds of ways. And as long as they did nothing subversive, as long as they kind of gave fealty to Caesar, Rome gave this group of religious leaders quite a bit of power and influence and prestige. So they have an, a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Second, they also do not believe in the resurrection. There's a kind of long theological reason for that, but it makes sense. If your life is given to material wealth in this world, you don't really have a whole lot of need for an afterlife. So they also did not uh, believe in the resurrection, and so they they come in and. Uh, Oh, and so sorry, so that's, that's who the Sadducees are, and then here come these apostles, right? Uh, they're preaching a, another kingdom with another king. Um, they're preaching a kingdom that's good news for the poor. None of this is good news for the Sadducees. This sounds politically subversive. This is gonna get them in trouble with Rome, plus it makes them feel guilty because their lives are dedicated to material wealth. They're the you know, wealthy aristocrats of their time. And, and then they're also preaching the resurrection, which is a very uncomfortable thought for people who would rather this life be the only life. So they arrest Peter and John. It's too late to try them that day, so they put them in prison overnight. And here we get to the trial. This begins in verse five. And what Luke is trying to communicate to us in this trial is this is an intimidating space for the, for the apostles. Uh it mentions this kind of the who's who of the religious life in Judaism. There's this council that's convened. It doesn't tell us this, but it was probably what was the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court, the highest legal court in the land over questions of religious law. 71 members, a big, kind of impressive, august assembly. Um, and there are clear parallels between this trial and the trial of Christ that we're supposed to see. It's the same group that convicted Jesus, tried and convicted Jesus, and, and, and sentenced him to death. Um, and, and not only is it the same, and again, this would have been just like two or three months before this, but not only is it the same group that tried and convicted Jesus, but they're even using the same kinds of questions uh, when, they, when they ask them, you know, in verse seven, by what power, by what name are you doing this? In whose authority are you, are you, did you heal this man that was born lame? There's echoes of questions asked of Jesus the days leading up to his crucifixion. In Luke chapter 20, one to two, Jesus is teaching the people in the temple courts, proclaiming the good news and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders come to him. That's the same group. And they say, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Very similar line of questioning. This is the test. Test. And again, what a test it is. The apostles are gonna see these parallels. They're gonna know that this is a group that convicted their Lord, although they knew he was innocent. They can't expect justice from this council. They know that they could very well put them to death as well. I mean, they're, they're probably feeling a, a certain level of deja vu. Like, are we, we, we gonna be like our Lord, crucified in a brutal way later today. So it's a test for the apostles. Are they gonna remain faithful to Jesus Christ in the face of potentially a very terrible death? But also we have to see that this is a test for the church because the very well-being of the church is at risk at this moment. I mean, When a pastor sins in an egregious way or compromises in a serious way, it doesn't just affect the pastor and his family, it affects the church. Because although we don't put pastors on pedestals, right, Nonetheless, a pastor is a leader in the church and should set an example when that pastor sins, affects the church. So imagine, imagine what would happen to the church, this fledgling Christian movement, if these two apostles waver in this moment. When they're asked, By whose power are you doing this? What if they compromise a little bit? Or worse, what if they recant and deny Jesus? what would that do to the kingdom of God in this church? This is the test. Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And here, he's trying to, here he wants to devour the church. How will the apostles respond in the midst of this, cru- in the midst of this crisis? And this brings us to our second point. Jesus reigns through his spirit. So first point, the test. Second point, Jesus reigns through his spirit. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now at first glance, when we read this story, it does not seem like Jesus is particularly active. It doesn't describe Jesus as doing much in this story. In fact, after Acts 1, Jesus is not described as doing much in the entire book of Acts. I mean, you could read this story as, well, the apostles are arrested by this, and put on trial. They can't find a way to punish them, so they have to let them go and they get out. And there's many third world countries where that would be very par for course of how you know, corrupt legal systems work. It's like, where is Jesus here? I've named these two points. Jesus reigns by his spirit, and Jesus reigns, period. Okay, so Mike, where, where exactly is Jesus in all of this? And this is an important truth for us to keep in mind as we go through Acts, and it's this. When Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, that's in Acts 1, right? The apostles watch him ascend up into heaven, and he goes to the right hand of the Father. It's not like Jesus goes inactive. He's just kind of passively sitting up there until he comes back. The picture there is that Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and therefore he now reigns as king. And as king, he sends out his spirit. That's how Peter explains Pentecost in Acts 2.33. He says, being exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, this is Jesus, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Because Jesus Christ is not dead, but because he rose again from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, therefore he can pour out this promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So what that means is whenever we see the Holy Spirit working in Acts, we're also seeing the work of Jesus Christ, the King, because he's at the right hand of the Father, and he is the one who pours out the Spirit on the followers of Jesus. And we see the work of Jesus in Peter's extraordinary courage, in the midst of this test. Again, noting the parallels between Jesus' trial and this trial, I mean, Peter, he probably wasn't in the trial of Jesus, but he was present. He might have been listening through a window. He sees these parallels going on, right? He sees this deja vu moment. And what did Peter do last time? Peter wasn't even on trial last time. And he was so afraid for his life, he denied Jesus three different times to three different people. What is he gonna do when his own life is now in the balance? Let's see how he responds. Verse 10, this is his answer. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And then verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In this moment of testing, Peter gives the most forthright answer you can imagine. In fact, he, he kind of goes almost above and beyond. He's like, not only is this by Jesus' name, oh, by the way, his blood is on your hands. An innocent man who was the Messiah you killed. I think if you and I were John with Peter in this moment, we'd probably be like, did you have to include that? Couldn't you have said that more tactfully? Like, we don't have to deny Jesus, but did you have to mention, by the way, you crucified him? This is the Peter that denied Jesus just three months before. And here he is. Extraordinary courage. What is going on? This is verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus Christ reigns, he sends his spirit. So even Peter, who had a history of, of cowardice, can speak with this kind of courage in the face of a potential death threat. Because Jesus Christ reigns, he will not allow Peter and John to threaten the existence of his church by potentially recanting. He will send his spirit so that they will have the courage to be faithful to their Lord even in this moment of testing. And what we take from this for ourselves, because Jesus Christ reigns and he sends the spirit into our lives as well, no matter what kind of circumstance you might ever find yourself in, Because Jesus reigns and has given you his spirit, he will give you what you need to be faithful to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you go through. It doesn't matter where you live, what you do for a job. It doesn't matter what kind of circumstances come into your life. Because Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father and he sent his spirit, he will give you what you need to remain faithful to the Lord that you love. It's interesting, in this story, what is success? Success, for Peter and John, clearly, based on how they respond, is not even preserving their lives. Success is is faithfulness to Jesus. Because Jesus reigns. This is a very different way than how some professing Christians will talk about the truth that Jesus reigns. In, In some circles, you'll hear it like this, Well, Jesus reigns, therefore your cancer can and must be cured. Or Jesus reigns, and therefore you can never sin again, never deal with temptation again. Jesus reigns, that means that you'll get the raise at work you're praying for if you have faith. Jesus reigns. Or Jesus reigns, therefore your life will be easy and comfortable and always full of happiness, but we just have to point out that none of those apply to Peter and John, right? They're in the midst of revival, and it's cut short when, 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 when they're forcibly put into prison, and they're brought before this council, and they're intimidated, they're frightened, and then they're threatened, and they're let go, but they're not let go safely. It's like, hey, we can't kill you now, but the second we have the power to, we're going to take you out, This is not the apostles living their best life now, and yet Jesus reigns. And in fact, as we keep going through Acts, we'll find out that not only, that not always will Christians even be delivered with their lives. Stephen will be martyred. The promise here is that if we follow after our Lord, because he he reigns, He will give us what we need to be faithful to him no matter what. That's the promise, that's the hope of Peter and John. That's what success looks like in this situation. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ until we die. Walking closely with Jesus Christ, growing in grace until he takes us home. This text calls for us to rethink how we think about success in a lot of ways. Again, what is success ultimately for a Christian? It's remaining faithful to Jesus Christ and his gospel for the rest of our life. It's walking humbly after Jesus in the power of the spirit, resting in his work on the cross for us, trying to glorify him. That's success for the Christian. And that could be incredibly freeing for some of us some who, 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 who work themselves into binds and are so burdened by the sense of expectation that other people have on them, whether it's your parents or your friends or just cultural expectations. You need to achieve this. You need to do this. Your life needs to look like this. And if you don't, you're a failure. In fact, I one time heard um, the midlife crisis explained as, as, a, as the phenomenon that you're, you know, you're in your early 40s and so your life is almost halfway gone or more than halfway gone and you're realizing all the things you set out to achieve, you're not gonna be able to achieve them. And your life is running out and, it, and, and, and you won't have time now. Like it's too late to start over. You're not gonna achieve what you wanted to achieve and so you go and do crazy things. But again, what is success in this life for the Christian? It's not achieving whatever people are telling us you need to do or whatever our culture tells us it, we should be doing. Success is knowing Jesus, loving him, as best as we can, following him and obeying him in humble repentance. And in fact, in our, you know, American context, failure for the Christian might, in fact, look like achieving everything that you want to achieve, be it wandering from the Lord. And I have to make a caveat here, right? Um, Worldly success, quote unquote, and faithfulness to Christ are not mutually exclusive. There have been many Christians who are deeply faithful to the Lord uh, who vibrant and vital faiths who are very successful in their lives. Worldly mediocrity does not equal Christian, right? Let's be clear about that. But Jesus tells us to seek his kingdom first. And then out of the overflow of that, we use the talents and gifts that Jesus has given us to honor and glorify him because we're seeking his kingdom. So this text calls us to reframe what we call success. Again, the apostles go into this, their goal isn't even to survive. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't say, hey, by the way, you have the blood of Jesus on your hands. His goal is to be faithful to Jesus. And because Jesus reigns, he sends a spirit to help them do just that. So an application here, um, you know, we pray for success in all kinds of ways. We pray for success at our jobs, that God will give us favor at our work, that we'll do our jobs well. We pray for success in studies, for exams. Um, we pray for success in, in like weight loss goals and fitness and stuff. W- why don't we pray for the greatest success, that Jesus will help us seek, seek his kingdom first until we go home. If you're younger, pray that when you're 80, you won't have the same faith you have now, but you'll have one that's been tested and tried that you will love this Jesus more when you're 80 than you do when you're 25. Pray this for your kids. You know Some of us in this room have adult kids that have out, been out of the home for years. Some of us have kids who are in home. Some of us have kids that are in utero. And some of us will one day be kid. Or sorry, we' one day have kids. We want all kinds of good things for our kids. We love them. We'll lay down our lives for them. Pray this for your kids. No matter what happens to them, no matter where they go and what they do, pray that they will seek the kingdom of God first and then the rest is just gravy. Jesus reigns by his spirit. He sends a spirit to empower Peter and John to be faithful to their calling and their witness, even in the face of death. Jesus reigns by his spirit. That's the second point. And the third and final point is that Jesus reigns, period. Just Jesus reigns, end of story. No matter what, he reigns. Verses, let's uh, read, read, or sorry, follow along as I read verses 13 to 22. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? for that a notable sign has been performed through them as evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them in, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The apostles are delivered because Jesus Christ, in fact, is not in the grave, but is risen and ascended and he reigns. Nothing can stop his gospel. Nothing can stop his kingdom. And before I actually get to the third point, Jesus reigns, period, I just want to note we see such a a tender picture of God's mercy in this story that may not jump out to you at first. But here, Peter and John are speaking to this group of religious leaders who had used their God-given positions of leadership to kill God's son. They'd used the talents and the gifts that God and His grace had given them, their intelligence, their even the you know, ability to grow up and have the kind of training, and they'd used it to try and convict and condemn the Son of God. I think at the very least we would expect God to say, I'm done with these people. They've had their chances. There was plenty, there was enough for them to know that this Jesus was not an ordinary man. I'm done with them. And yet here we see the apostles coming to these religious leaders again and Give them another opportunity to see the truth and to repent. I mean, God shows these religious leaders a miracle. I've heard people say, Mike, if I could have been there and seen these miracles, I'd believe. And these men see the miracle. They, they I mean, they're like talking to each other, like, we can't deny that this has been a miracle. That's God's mercy to them yeah, you killed the Messiah, but here's another opportunity. Open your eyes and see. He gives them the miracle of Peter and John. I mean, it says they're, they're astonished because these men were uneducated, common men. It doesn't mean that they're illiterate. When it says uneducated it means they hadn't gone through the grueling training required for a rabbi. They were theologically untrained. They hadn't gone to seminary. They didn't have a PhD. They were just laymen. They weren't clergy of any kind, and yet they're speaking with such conviction and such clarity and such insight into the scriptures. They're like, how is this possible? And they see that these men have been with Jesus. Again, opportunities. Wake up. Open your eyes to see who this is. They may have killed this Jesus, but he's now coming after them. Mercies of God. Uh, Addie um, asked me a question this week. One of the beautiful things having kids is, um, you know, they get to experience truths for the first time that we've heard so many times that they can become kind of rote for us. <laughs> and so Addie asked me, um, uh, "Daddy, did did Jesus love the Roman soldiers?" And at first, she was sitting in the back of the car. At first, I thought she said, "Did Jesus love the women soldiers?" And I'm like. Is this like a gender thing? Like, what have you been watching? <laughs> and um, and they said the Roman soldiers. Like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And and her question makes sense. It's like, did Jesus love the men who hammered the nails into his flesh? Like, of course you wouldn't expect that. We're like, well, yeah, Jesus loves sinners, of course. But his four-year-olds, like, he didn't love those. He didn't love the Romans. And I, yeah, Addy. Jesus even loved the Roman soldiers. This is the mercy of God, coming after the men who used their power and authority and influence to murder the Son of God. He comes to us again and again and again. But in addition to the mercy of God, we also see the hardness of the human heart. Because these men, although they can't deny the miracle, there's never a moment where they're like, hey, maybe we should think about this maybe we should consider what these apostles are saying. All of it is, is PR spin. Okay, how do, we, how do we contain this? How do we make sure this doesn't grow? How do we put the best possible spin on this so that our positions aren't affected, so that the status quo, so that our, our you know, not, so that nothing changes, we can maintain what we have? You know, some might object, how could anyone who see this, sees this kind of miracle, a man who'd been born lame and healed, how could you not wonder and like be open? How could they act in this way, knowing what they know? And actually, I think it's a perfect reflection of what we know of the human heart. When you look at the denominational scandals of sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church and our own denomination, what's been so tragic is that men and women in leadership and in power knew. They knew the truth and they didn't do anything because they wanted to protect their positions and their institutions. This is exactly the human heart. And it's not just them, it's our hearts. This is the human heart. Who can overcome it? And so Paul gets at in Romans 7, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is the human heart. Who can overcome it? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. See the mercy of God and the hardness of the human heart. But Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns, period. The whole point of this passage is these men want to kill Christ and his followers. They want to kill the church. They want to end it. But Jesus reigns, and so they cannot do anything that Jesus will not allow them to do. Jesus uses the very people who cried for his own blood, the crowds of people, who are now marveling at this miracle. I mean, that's why the, the, the council can't kill Peter and, and John, because they're like, the people are going to stone us, because we are worrying about, you know, like, like we've seen the miracle, but we're not really worried about the marvel of the miracle, but the people are, They know God's doing something. Their hands are tied. Because Jesus reigns. Period. Satan can take his best attempts at the church. He can take his best attempts at you. He can't do anything that Christ does not want him to do. Because Jesus reigns because this Jesus Christ died on a cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again and he reigns at the right hand of the Father Almighty and he sent his spirit and he reigns. And yes, some will even give their lives for this gospel as we'll see with Stephen the martyr. But even then, Christ will not abandon Stephen, but will miraculously be with him in the moment of his death. And we'll use that to advance the kingdom and this is the whole point in verse four, as the leaders are being arrested, still many who heard believed. They can throw the leaders in jail. The gospel will advance. Why? Because Jesus reigns. Period. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we need to be reminded that you really are reigning at the right hand of the Father. And that you send your spirit to transform hearts and to bring hope, that you bring beauty out of ashes, because you reign. O oh Christ, may we. may we be filled with the spirit that you send out, filled so that we might, above all, if nothing else, be faithful to the gospel that you have given to us, faithful to our confession of faith that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the salvation of the world, and there isn't any other. We pray this in your holy and your beautiful name. Amen.